Jonah chapter 1. You can either read from your Bible or if you have a study guide, it's printed for you on page 10. It also appears on the screen. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preached against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. And then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he'll take notice of us and we will not perish. And then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us. Who's responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he'd already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to the land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Don't hold us responsible for killing an innocent man. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. And then they took Jonah and threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. It is a delight and a privilege to introduce our Bible teacher for this week. In some ways, having consecutively spoken at Spring Harvest and presented Bible readings for us over a 17-year period, R.T. Kendall really needs no introduction, but we do warmly welcome him and Louise, his wife, today. Louise, would you just stand, please, and give us a wave? Let's welcome Louise, first of all, shall we? Married for 45 years in June. Great to have you with us. For many years, R.T. was... Uh, minister at Westminster Chapel. You may know him not only through his teaching and preaching, but he's a, a very prolific author, 35 to 40 books that he's written, all of them uh, still in print, an international Bible teacher now living in Florida where the sun permanently shines. RT, thank you for paying the price and the sacrifice for the gospel in that. In all seriousness, we are quite delighted to welcome you. I know that thousands and thousands of people have been profoundly impacted through your ministry over the years, and we are delighted to hear the Word of the Lord taught by you. Let's welcome R.T. Kendall.
Thank you, Jeff. That was the greatest introduction I've ever had. I'm so honored to be here. This is our first time uh, to, to be here since uh, retiring uh, over a year ago. Uh, somebody anonymously, we don't know who, paid for Louise to come over, and we're just thrilled to be back in England. We became Anglophiles. Never forget that we lived here 28 years, three years at Oxford, 25 years at Westminster Chapel to the day, and uh, uh, this is home. The best friends we ever had uh, are here in Britain. We miss you. We miss England. We miss a good cup of tea. We miss chicken tikka masala. <laughs> and we miss a good newspaper. Uh, but uh, thank you, Executive, for having us, uh, Alan, and uh, for Jeff. Uh, Jeff is so well known in America. It's, did you know he's better known in America than I am? Nobody in America knows me. But, but they, they know Jeff, and uh, uh, that warm introduction reminds me of a friend of mine from Pennsylvania who had been introduced to this large sales gathering as the man from Texas who had made $200 million in oil, and he was going to tell how he did it. And when he heard the introduction, he panicked. He said to himself, what am I going to do? Well, he said, there's only one thing to do, and that's stand up and tell these people the truth. So he said, folks, before I get into my talk, uh, one or two discrepancies in the introduction I need to clarify. First, he said, I'm not from Texas. I'm from Pennsylvania. Second, the money was not in oil. It was in coal. Third, the figure was not $200 million. It was $200,000. Fourth, it wasn't me, it was my brother. <laughs> Fifth, he didn't make it, he lost it. <laughs> this week, we have the privilege of looking at the book of Jonah, and we begin in chapter 1. A very relevant book at the present time. And let me tell you why. For one thing, it is analogous to the church today, speaking generally. It is my view, and I don't mean to be unfair, and I certainly don't mean to be negative at the beginning of this talk, that I think the church is in retreat. God said, go. And the church has said, no. And like Jonah, who was asleep in the side of the ship, the church today is asleep, in retreat. The church has been given a message, but is not preaching it. But to go from the general to the particular, to individualize it, we all know what it is, I think, in some degree, to be like Jonah. I can tell you, I'm Jonah. I know what it is for God to say go, and I say no. And God said, really? And he prepared a fish for me. 
I know what it is to be brought to my knees and finally to say, yes, Lord. And so we're looking at Jonah, a type of the backslider. And you may disagree, but I think we've all been backsliders on a scale of 1 to 10, let's say 10 being the worst possible scenario, uh, to some degree in between. We've all been backsliders. And the book of Jeremiah tells us that God is married to the backslider. To be a backslider doesn't mean that you've lost your salvation. Quite the contrary, God works overtime to show how much he loves us. And I wonder if there are those here today, you've been brought to spring harvest for such a time as this. You have been on the run, and you thought you could run from the Lord, but you found you were wrong. David said, if I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. And you thought you were running from God, and you find out you couldn't do it. Perhaps you are a Jonah. I like Jonah because it is a God-centered book. Rightly understood and interpreted, this book tells us more about God than it does about Jonah. We see how good God is, how great, how tender, how patient and how he has a way of getting what he wants out of us and from us at the end of the day so that we can take no credit for the way God uses us and the fact that he brings us back because he is tender and he can do anything. Well, when it comes to being a backslider, I think there are three things that characterizes a backslider. The first would be disobedience. God said to Jonah, go, and he said, no. And God then prepared the wind. He prepared the fish. But the second thing about a backslider is, in some degree, he's ungrateful. Now, what an honor it was for Jonah to be chosen to go to Nineveh with a message. How dare Jonah say no? What a grateful person he ought to have been. And I dare say, whoever you are, if you stop and count your blessings and name them one by one, you realize how good, how singularly good God has been to you, but the truth is, you haven't been grateful. The third characteristic of a backslider is that he's asleep. And so we're told that Jonah had gone below the deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep with everything around him when the world needed to be awakened, Jonah, asleep. And could it be that you are best described at the moment as a person who is spiritually asleep? Now, there are certain characteristics about sleep. One is, you don't know you were asleep until you wake up. 
You know what it's like? Lie down on the couch, you think, I'm not going to sleep, just going to rest for a couple of minutes. And suddenly, you look at your watch, 20 minutes later, I can't believe I was asleep. You don't know you were asleep until you wake up. And this is the scary thing about being asleep spiritually. You don't realize it. The second thing about sleep is you dream and do things in your sleep that you wouldn't do wide awake. Aren't you glad people don't know your dreams? I'm so glad that God knows everything about me and loves me just the same. But in your dreams, according to Freud, it's an unexpressed desire, unexpressed wish, whatever. You do things in your dreams you wouldn't do wide awake. And so it is when you are asleep spiritually, you find yourself stepping toward the world, doing things that when awake you say, I'll never do that. But you are doing that. And now things that used to bother you don't bother you. What's the explanation? You're asleep. The third thing about sleep is we all hate the sound of an alarm. And so if anybody tries to tap you on the shoulder, whether you're like the brother or the sister overtaken in a fault and someone tiptoes gently to you and tries to get your attention and you rebel, you don't like the sound of of an alarm when someone is lovingly trying to say, there's something not right here. Or if the preacher or teacher says something where it gets close to the bone and you reject it, we all hate the sound of an alarm. Well, now there are three things that I want us to see about Jonah from chapter 1. The first is Jonah's folly. What happened was that he underestimated God. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. But then verse 4 says, Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. But Jonah, then the Lord. And so Jonah did not realize that God was still on his case. And it could be that you were told specifically what God wanted you to do, and you said, no, thanks very much. And you thought that you got out of the contract, out of the deal, but you forgot. As Jeremiah 31 verse 3 put it, we're loved with an everlasting love. But Jonah ran from the Lord. Verse 4, then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. Now, if you could take just a brief theological lesson. Every student in seminary or Bible college learns the three big O's. God's omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence. This summarizes very succinctly God. doesn't tell you everything, but it tells you a lot. His omniscience, that means he knows everything. One of the missing notes 
in biblical theology today is just this. A strange theology has crept into the church that God doesn't know everything. In fact, some are saying that he waits for us to inform him what he ought to do next, as if God did not know the end from the beginning, as the Bible says. I can tell you, God knows everything. There's nothing that you can do or say that he doesn't know it even before it happened. The crucifixion of Jesus that we recognize on this Good Friday did not take heaven by surprise. Indeed, he is called the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He knew why he came into the world the whole time of his ministry, prophesied his own death. And so with you, God knows your future in every detail. You say, well, I can't figure that out. We're not supposed to figure it out. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts higher than our thoughts. He knows everything, and omnipresence means he's everywhere. There is no place where God is not. And you may have run from God and thought you succeeded. And so the folly is, as the authorized version put it, Jonah ran away from the presence of the Lord. I can tell you, you cannot run from the presence of the Lord. Wherever you go, God is there. I repeat, make your bed in hell. God is there. It's a wonderful thing to know that you cannot really run from his presence. And omnipotence means that he is all-powerful. That means he can do anything. You see, whenever you talk to a non-Christian, if you get into much of a conversation, and I learned this firsthand when at Westminster Chapel we started our pilot light ministry, and we would talk to people on the streets, and if you get a person to talk very long, within 10 seconds... The predictable question, well, if there is a God and he's all-powerful, why does he allow things to happen? And there is an answer to that, and it's, it, it, it's a serious answer. And that is, in order that you could have faith. Because if you knew the answer to that, you wouldn't need faith anymore. And the very thing that makes faith, faith, the very thing that makes faith a possibility is that God allows things that you don't understand, but you believe him anyway. He's all-powerful, and it was nothing for God to send the wind. It was nothing for God to create a fish big enough in which to swallow Jonah. And so, here is a God-centered book showing you his power and his eternal Love, But there's another O, if I could add, to omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence, and that is his overruling. And thank God for that. The mariners, the sailors, rolled the dice to see who's causing the storm. And the lot fell on Jonah. God overruling. And lo and behold, as we see before we finish the day, these very pagan sailors were converted as a result of Jonah's witness. 
Here, a backslider being used in the conversion of these sailors. You talk about God overruling. And just a reminder, if God uses any of us, it will be because He overruled. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Well, Jonah's folly, not understanding God, misunderstanding God, and he had this mistake. He confused the providence of God with temptation. Let me explain. We're told in verse 2, or verse 3, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa and he found a ship that was bound for Tarshish. Now, here's the way Jonah could look at it. I'm going to go to Tarshish. He goes to the port. Lo and behold, a boat going to Tarshish. He says, thank you, Lord. I knew it was all right after all. It looked providential. And this is the way we do. When we're running from the Lord, something happens to confirm us in our disobedience. We say to ourselves, well, this couldn't be wrong after all. I didn't know this was going to happen. Wanting a boat for Tarshish, a boat going to Tarshish, he gets on it. He confused the providence of God with temptation. And it's easy for us. It's the easiest thing in the world to say when you are tempted that you are tempted of God. And because it's so easy to think that, James put it like this, James 1.13, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after he, death has, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Be careful. You may say, well, I prayed about it, and this is what happened. I didn't know this was going to happen. I even prayed the Lord's Prayer that day, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And look what happened. Must have been of God. And so Jonah could reason that way. I'm going to go to Tarshish. And he goes to the port. A boat going to Tarshish. I'll get on it. And he felt good. And this often happens. You fall into temptation. And the moment you feel nothing. You feel good. And it seems right. Is there someone involved in a situation like that even as I speak? And you've confirmed your disobedience because things worked out in such a way. Listen carefully to me. Stop it. Stop it. Break it off now. Because it's only a matter of time. You will be so sorry. God says, go to Nineveh, but Jonah, thank God for verse 4, then the Lord. And I want you to know, God is on your case. Now, you can take my word, 
which I would think is the word of the Lord when I say, stop it. Or continue on. It's only a matter of time. You will say what Jonah said, as we will see tomorrow. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Jonah said it wasn't worth it. You will say that. Jonah's folly. Secondly, Jonah found out. Well, here's the way it happened. He got on the ship, went to sleep. The Lord sent out a violent storm. And the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God with a little G. It's amazing. The most unbelieving person, the atheist, the infidel, the agnostic, when in this kind of trouble will call out on God. General MacArthur used to say there are no atheists in foxholes, trenches. And they're calling out on God, and here's Jonah asleep, and they say, get up. Don't you know what is happening? The funny thing is that the sailors were awakened before Jonah. They are the ones that are wide awake. And sometimes the world wakes up before the church. And too often the world makes more sense than the church. Some years ago an Episcopal rector made a stunning comment to his denomination. It was carried all over uh, the broadcasting network in America. He said, if the Holy Spirit were completely taken from the church today, 90% of the work of the church would go right on as if nothing happened. And what we're witnessing in our day is the church asleep. The world is crying out for answers. Wake up. Who are you? Why all this? The church is not giving answers. The church answering questions that the world is not asking. There is what Calvin called common grace. His words were special grace in nature. The meaning is this. God has certain grace given commonly to everybody. Doesn't mean they're converted. Just means God is good to everybody in some way. Your job, saved or lost, God gave you that job. Your IQ, high or low, not having anything to do with being a Christian. The fact that you are a genius. You can say, well, this is because I'm a Christian. No, you would be a genius if you weren't a Christian. There are days when I come in tired that uh, don't tell him I said so, but sometimes I would rather listen to Rachmaninoff than Graham Kendrick. Uh, no evidence that Rachmaninoff was saved, but I'm just in a mood for something like that. Yehudi Menuhin playing the violin. No evidence that he was saved. Albert Einstein, IQ of 212, averages 100, 130's genius. 212, he wasn't saved, as far as we know. Common grace. And so what happens is that the church, because of special grace in nature, sometimes will have the answers that the church should be providing. But what we know is the confusion of the world 
in this case was traced to Jonah. And so they said to him, get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. But then the sailors in their desperation said to each other, let's cast lots. They rolled the dice and see who's responsible. And this is what I mean by God's overruling. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. God can overrule and use that kind of thing to get our attention. Let me ask you a question. What if you, what if you, in a backslidden state, but because you profess to be a Christian, you're called upon, and someone says, you go to church, or it seems like I heard something, I need help. And you say, well, I'm not really where I ought to be. I'm not sure I can help you. What if you have no answer? I wonder if there are those here today, you profess to be a Christian, but you don't talk to people about Jesus. I will not ask for a show of hands. I don't want to embarrass anybody. But if I would ask and you were to respond, how many people here have never led a soul to Jesus Christ? And I ask you to stand. I wonder what this place would look like. In my first year at Westminster Chapel, I raised that question. How many here have never led a soul to Christ? There was one man who was sitting back on the third row. He remembers it well. His name was Bob George. And he said, when you said that, I was shaken rigid. He said, I was 60 years old, been a Christian for years and years and years. But I realized I'd never led a soul to the Lord. He was so ashamed. Not too many years later, Arthur Blessed came to Westminster Chapel he turned us upside down, got us out on the streets, and our pilot light ministry was born. Mr. George was the first there. The last time I talked to him, he had led over 500 people to the Lord. You say, are they all saved? You tell me. But some of them were. I know of one that went into the Anglican ministry. I guess you have to be saved to be an Anglican. But he decided to do everything he could from then on. And so the world is looking for answers. Do you have the answer? Do you know how to lead a soul to Jesus Christ? Well, here was a great storm, a severe storm, and the cause of the storm was Jonah. He was the root of the problem. The whole problem could be traced to Jonah. And could it be that there's confusion wherever you are? When you go into the office, there's trouble. You walk into your home, there's trouble. You go into the church, there's trouble. But you blame the office. You blame the family. You blame the church. But the problem is not outside of you. 
reminds me of a story that came out of the hills of Kentucky many years ago. There was a man who had a mustache who fell asleep one day, and some kids decided to play a little joke on him, and they put some Limburger cheese in his mustache. Now, I don't know if you've ever smelt Limburger cheese. It's from Germany. Uh, how can I describe it? Let's say that Stilton smells like Chanel Number no. 5 <laughs> compared to Limburger cheese. I'm told it tastes better than it smells. I certainly hope so. But they did that. And then they ran away, and the man woke up, and he said, this bed stinks. Sat on the edge of the bed. This room stinks. He walked into another room. This room stinks. He walked to another room. He says, the whole house stinks. Then he walked outside, and he said, the world stinks. Continuing storm, Jonah was the problem. And could it be that God has brought you to spring harvest to say as lovingly but as firmly as one can, stop pointing the finger and take the spirit of that old spiritual that came out of the cotton fields in the 19th century in Alabama and Mississippi. It's not my brother nor my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not the preacher, not the deacon, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. And so the cause of the continuing storm was Jonah. I love William Cowper's hymn, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. And so the sailors said, let us cast lots and find out who's responsible for this. And the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you? Now Jonah, boxed into a corner, was forced to come clean. I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. They knew he wasn't making that up, and they were terrified. And they said, what have you done? Well, he had told them he was running from the Lord. By this, you would have thought the storm would calm. Perhaps you think just because you come clean and you admit that you're the person, everything's going to end. But God wanted to do a complete work. The storm was getting rougher and rougher, and they asked him, what should we do to you and make the sea calm down for us? Being forced to identify himself, he had to do something that he never dreamed would be possible. He said, I'm sorry, but the storm will not subside until you throw me overboard. That's the way it's going to get calm. It's my fault. 
that this great storm has come upon you. He never dreamed he'd make a confession like that. But is there somebody here today? You need to come clean. I don't know who you should tell it to. I'm not saying that you should stand up and blab it to the world. But it may be that you need to go to your wife or to your husband and say, I'm sorry. I am so sorry. Perhaps to your church leader. You've been a nightmare for that person. Stop pointing the finger and say, it's me. I'm sorry. Perhaps you need to go to a parent or maybe to your child. It's not easy. And it may get worse before it gets better because the only thing in this case, Jonah said, you're going to have to throw me overboard. Well, they didn't want to do that, so they did their best to row back to land. Well, the interesting thing was, and this is a parallel note that comes out of the book of Jonah, and I think many people overlook this. They took his advice, and they did what he said to do. They tried hard. The more they rowed, the sea got worse. And then when they threw him overboard and everything got calm, it led to a definite conversion. Did you ever know this about the book of Jonah? The pagan mariners on the ship were converted. Let me show you how to know for sure that they were saved. First, they called on the true God. They said, oh, Lord, the Hebrew is Yahweh. Earlier on, they just called to their God, little g. Now they're calling on the name of the Lord because Jonah said, I am a Hebrew. I serve the Lord, Yahweh, the God of the heavens. And so they called upon the true God. If anybody's ever saved, it will be because he calls upon the name of God, the God of the Bible, and never be ashamed of this word from Jesus himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. What maybe 30, 40 years ago was just ABCs and theological jargon. But we're coming into an era where the very testimony of the early church, there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved than the name of Jesus. Whoever you are, don't be ashamed of the name of Jesus. They called on the true God. But the next thing is we find out they were beggars. Please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Years ago, when I just started preaching, I had a sermon I called, Only Beggars Will Be Saved. You know why? This is because only those who ask for mercy are converted. Have you been given the message that you do God some kind of a favor when you salute to him or tip your hat to him? Listen, 
The God of the Bible is one on whom you call and ask for mercy. When you ask for mercy, it means you have no bargaining power. Have you been snapping your finger and expecting God to jump? Well, Lord, I've come to spring harvest. And God's saying, oh, I'm so proud of you. Wonderful. Listen, none of that here. They were pleading with him. By the way, whenever you ask for mercy, that means you are in real trouble. You might ask for a favor. I may go to Jeff or Alan and say, would you do me a favor? In fact, I've asked for a couple of favors. And they may do it. Well, and then I'm going to try to remember to do something for them because, you know, I don't want to be given a lot of mercy. Grace is too humbling. Jeff, if I ever come to you and ask for mercy, you'll know I'm in real trouble, deep trouble. You know, this is the only way we approach God. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. When is the last time you asked God for mercy? Did you ever ask another person for mercy? Years ago, before we ever came to England, and we lived in Fort Lauderdale, Louise and I would sometimes drive to Miami Beach where you have those beautiful hotels on Collins Avenue, one after another, luxurious, beautiful hotels. And the one called the Fountain Blue is on the main beach right in the center of Miami. And I remember driving about uh, 35 miles per hour and I came to a green light that turned yellow. And because we were going 35 miles per hour, I just went on through even though it turned red. And I looked in the mirror and there was a blue light going off and on, off and on. Oh no. And I got out, walked back to the policeman. He was sitting like this. So I knew he knew that I knew what I did. So no use trying to say, well, why did you stop me? I said, look, I hope you won't give me a ticket. He said, why? I said, I'd appreciate it. <laughs> he said, you went right through that red light. You went right through that red light. You're asking me not to give you a ticket. Give me one reason why I shouldn't give you a ticket. Well, you can see on my driving license, we live in Fort Lauderdale. I think in Fort Lauderdale, the lights stay yellow just a little longer <laughs> than they should. He said, you got to do better than that. <laughs> I said, no reason. I'm just asking for mercy. He let me go. I'll never forget how I felt. And this is the way you're converted. And by the way, as a Christian, you don't graduate. Now you ask for mercy and you're saved. You don't have to do that anymore. Hebrews 4, 16, written to Christians. Let us come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help. You never outgrow the need of mercy. They called upon the true God. They were beggars. And they were converted through the witness of Jonah. In this case, through the witness of a backslidden preacher. Does it surprise you that God uses the ministry of ministers who aren't perfect? You know, this is just a hint 
that God can use anybody. If God could use Jonah, He can use anybody. And I'm going to tell you right now, if He could use me, He can use anybody. But the fact that these mariners, sailors, turned to the Lord, do you think Jonah could go around saying, well, look what I did. may have been out of the will of the Lord, but look what I did. Look, he could get no credit for that. And every conversion is an act of God's grace. Nobody can get the credit. God does it so that only he gets the credit. And I know what it is for God to use me when I feel the most unworthy. Some years ago, not that many. I remember one Sunday morning before church, my wife had an argument before I left. I mean, it was a doozy. I tell you now, she was horrible. <laughs> I slammed the door, went down the lift. Before I know it, it's 11 o'clock. I'm sitting on the platform of Westminster Chapel, bowing my head piously. And I think, dear God, how can I preach today? And I felt so ashamed. And there's no way to get Louise's attention and say, I'm sorry, it's my fault. No way to send a note because I'm afraid somebody read it. And, and I just, just said, Lord, any chance you would use me today? Do you know, it was one of the greatest services we ever had. I mean, there was power. It was amazing. But that was one day when I went back to that vestry. I was not gloating. There was no sense of credit God did it. And that's the way it is every time, even those times when we feel like we're prepared or whatever. And so it came through the witness of a Jonah who in this case wasn't right with God. Along the way, they dignified his will. Listen, they said, O Lord, you have done as you pleased. You that have had a quarrel with God, and I understand that. We've all been there. But may God hasten the day when you say, I don't understand it, but I still serve you. Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Arthur Blessed was in the northern part of Israel where he said it was cold and the rain came down he had nothing, no place to go. He was carrying his cross. It was late at night. Everything was closed, and he lay down on a bench at a bus stop. And the rain was coming down, and Arthur said, I looked at the rain and said, Stop in the name of Jesus. What do you think happened? What do you think happened? No, it didn't stop. Thunder, lightning crashed, and the rain became treble. And Arthur said, Lord, I still love you. And God in heaven said, good. And that's what he wants you to do. Trust him for his grace. Trace the rainbow through the rain. Because one day you will be glad you did. They dignified God's will. But the amazing thing, have you ever noticed this? The men greatly feared the Lord when there was a sudden calm. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. This means atonement outside themselves. They made sacrifices. It's Good Friday. 
It's called crucifixion, if you use the historical word. But theologically, it's called atonement. Here are two words you need to put in your theological vocabulary. Substitution, satisfaction. Substitution, satisfaction. Charles Spurgeon said, apart from those two words, there is no gospel. Jesus is our substitute. He took our place. This is why you've got to go outside yourself to be saved. It's not a matter of turning over a new leaf. It's not a matter of saying, from now on, I'll do better. I'll get better. I'll do the right thing. Wrong. The words of Augustus Toplady, in my hand, no price I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. They made a sacrifice because they had to go outside themselves. You've got to go outside yourself and put all of your eggs into one basket. Jesus died. What's the word satisfaction mean? Ah, the blood that he shed satisfied the divine justice. And once God saw the blood, he said, I will pass over you. And when he sees that you're covered by the blood of Jesus, you can be sure you will go to heaven when you die. And you're given a pardon, assurance of eternal life, not because of anything you do, but because of the sheer grace of God. By grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Jonah's folly. Jonah found out, finally, as we close, Jonah's fish. What was going on here? Well, the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. This was the mercy of God. Let me tell you something. God could have finished off Jonah right then. When they threw him into the sea, they thought he was a goner, and so did he. It's all over. And perhaps you, because of what you did, maybe it was serious stuff. Maybe it was a cutting word. Maybe you did the unthinkable. And you said, I'm a goner. God can never use me now. There's no hope for me. <laughs> there was hope for Jonah. There's hope for you. Why the continuing storm? I can tell you three reasons. One, God is trying to get your attention. Two, chastening, God's disciplining you is not meted out in proportion to your sin that has been committed, but in proportion to the lesson we need to learn. And so because God has chastened you, we'll look into that tomorrow, three kinds of chastening. He's chastening you not because he's wanting to get even with you. It's not tit for tat. I remember a lady coming into the vestry and said, oh, I know why this is happening to me. 14 years ago, I did something. I've been waiting for this. Now it's come. I said, stop it. God doesn't chasten you to get even. God got even at the cross. 
as far as the east is from the west. So far are our transgressions removed from us. The blood, the blood, the blood of Jesus washes away all sin. Chastening is not God getting even. He's trying to get your attention. It is meted out in proportion to the lesson you need to learn. And third, God isn't finished with you yet. That is the reason for the continuing storm. Well, I love the way the authorized version puts it in Jonah chapter 2, verse 1. NIV says the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Authorized version says, then Jonah prayed. Then Jonah prayed. But Jonah, then the Lord. Are you in the belly of a fish? Then Jonah prayed. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, would you be pleased to take this word and apply it by your Holy Spirit that that Jonah out there who's been brought to spring harvest 2003 for such a time as this is getting a wake-up call. Thank you for that. Put your seal upon this word. May it change somebody's life and the result being never the same again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.